or of your word, and we ask that you help Mark as he communicates that to us. We ask it in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. So what about the unpardonable sin? That's what we're going to talk about this hour. And, of course, it's related to grace. A lot of people talk about the unpardonable sin. Some people think they've committed it. In fact, many Christians, surprisingly enough, I shouldn't say many, but they do think about it. Have I really committed the unpardonable sin? And I would say this. If you're actually worried that you have committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. And uh, because you know, what we're going to see here today, especially with regard to the Pharisees, is that they had no knowledge that they were, had actually committed this sin, had no understanding uh, that they were even going down that path. They thought they were on the right path. They were not. And they were given the best kind of evidence to understand that Jesus was truly the Christ. And they're going to reject all the messianic evidence that was given to them. And so what we're going to see this morning is that the unpardonable sin is unique to its own time period. It's unique to the time of Christ. It is not a sin that can be committed today. And so we'll spend a lot of time talking about the really unique uh, nature of this sin and the historical cir- uh, circumstances which brought this sin about. The unpardonable sin is otherwise known as the blasphemy of the Spirit. It is specifically mentioned in the parallel passages of Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 through 32, Mark chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, and then Luke chapter 12, verse 10. Why don't we turn this morning or this afternoon now to, to Matthew chapter 12, and we'll take a look at verses 30 through 32. We'll just sort of read through these parallel passages. We'll actually open up our Bibles for a change uh, at a, here at this Bible conference and... Uh, Let's take a look at this, verses 30 through 32. Notice here, uh, Jesus uh, is speaking, of course. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Notice he mentions also the word blasphemy here. So we can talk about uh, blasphemy or sin, and uh, this is not the blasphemy of the Spirit. So he talks and he also mentions any other sin. So there's a lot of leeway here with regard to any kind of sins or blasphemy that can be forgiven. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And then we have uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 10, a very short uh, phrase. Why don't we turn there? Luke chapter, short verse, I should say. Luke chapter 12, verse 10. And then we'll go to Mark. So Luke chapter 12, verse 10. And here again, Jesus is speaking. And he says here, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And then finally, let's go to uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. So these are all parallel passages. And of course, Mark um, summarizes a lot of things. And notice uh, what he says here, Jesus says, Verses 28 through 30, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. So he says, all sins. And whatever blasphemies they utter. So once again, we see the blasphemies and sins, they can all be forgiven. Verse 29, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now we can debate exactly what we mean by eternal sin. There's different views on this. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, for example, talks about uh, 70 A.D. This will lead up to the whole discussion with the fall of Jerusalem and all the judgments that took place there because they rejected their Messiah. And uh, that's certainly a very uh, good interpretation of that. Uh, I'm going to actually take the position this is actually an individual sin, and I will explain why this is really not a problem theologically, even though some people may think so. And we'll explain uh, that this is really what we see here with regard to the Pharisees is an extreme form of unbelief. 
And so these men were given the best kind of messianic evidence that could ever be offered to anybody. They saw the miracles that Jesus Christ did. They still said no. And not only did they say no, but they actually said, you are a son of the devil. And so there's really nothing more God can do in terms of evidence to help convince these men that he's the son of God. They said no. And so they're going to go through these mental gyrations and the rejection of Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Messiah. And this is unique again to that time period. And this is a sin that cannot be done today because we don't see Jesus doing these kind of miracles. Interestingly enough, if you go to the book of Acts, chapter 6 through 8, we have the story of Stephen and he is martyred. And of course, uh, we have the same type of groups of opposition against him. The Pharisees are against uh, Stephen. Of course, the Sanhedrin is there as well. And interestingly enough is that Stephen will actually pray that God will forgive them. And of course, we know that uh, Saul was forgiven, right? He becomes a believer after this. And, of course, he was one of the men that consented to have uh, Stephen killed. And interestingly enough, Stephen could actually do miracles, remember. So he was full of faith and he was full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He, was, he could actually do miracles. And there's no discussion about the unpardonable sin in that passage in the book of Acts. So even, let's say, for the sake of argument, like some Pentecostals argue, you know, I, I do miracles by the power of the Spirit. Well, Stephen did, and yet he prayed that God would forgive them. And so the unpardonable sin is not something which can be committed even today, especially after Jesus died and rose again. Stephen does not even entertain that discussion. And it's something, again, which uh, is rooted in its own time period, as we shall see in the book of uh, the gospel period. So uh, why don't we quote from Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer. He he noted here a very interesting uh, quotation from him. When considering the subject of the blasphemy of the spirit, it may be well noted that quite beyond human explanation, men do not swear in the name of the third person. They don't. It's very interesting. A lot of other terms are used, God the Father, God the Son, but never the Holy Spirit. From this fact, it may be concluded that there is now and ever has been a peculiar sanctity belonging to the Holy Spirit. His very name and title imply this. Okay, so what is the gravity of the unpardonable sin? Well, certainly it's no ordinary sin as we've already been mentioned already today. Mark 3.28 and Matthew 12.31 uses the term blasphemies and blasphemy to distinguish it from words sins and sins in order to accentuate its highest character. According to uh, BDAG lexicon, the noun blasphemy means reviling. It means denigration, disrespect, or slander. Mark 3.29 uses the verb blaspheme to characterize Matthew and Luke's phraseology that reads speak against. So that's what you know, that's uh, Matthew 12.32, Luke 12.10. While Matthew warns the unpardonable sin cannot be forgiven either in this age and the one coming, Mark summarizes and heightens the enormity of the slander by following up his usage of the verb to blaspheme with this terrifying phrase coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. He says he is guilty of an eternal sin. So what do we mean by this? And of course, uh, the commentators debate this, and we'll try to uh, take a look at what's going on here in the context. Notice, uh, again, as we already read Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man shall be forgiven. But then he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So what we have here is a contrast between all other sins and this is unique. So it's something which Jesus is actually taking great pains to show how unique this particular sin is rooted in its own circumstances. Now who are the men that commit the blasphemy of the Spirit or at least are being warned of it? We can debate whether or not they've actually done it. Uh, But who are being warned? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all identify the blasphemy of the Spirit as attributing Jesus' miraculous powers of exorcism to Satan, and the men that are being warned of this are the Pharisees. Uh, I believe it's in uh, Mark where it says the scribes. So apparently there are scribal Pharisees that show up, and uh, they are looking at what Jesus is doing, and they see him heal, a, uh, actually exercise a demon from a man. He gets healed, and so therefore they say, well, what's going on here? They say, well, this guy's got to be a son of the devil to do that. 
And so they're given this tremendous, um, this tremendous exhi- exhibition of miraculous power. It's obvious for him to everybody, you know, here we got the, somebody here that can actually exercise demons. What does that tell you? Well, he's more powerful than the demons. The obvious conclusion should be that this is truly the Son of God as prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And, of course, uh, one of the things that we know the Messiah could have done is going to be miracles, which is predicted by many, you know, Isaiah said he would do miracles, Isaiah 53, just for, just for starters. And so there's a lot of things these men should have been able to put together. They, see, these Pharisees are the teachers of Israel. They know better. They know they sure are supposed to know right from wrong. Of course, they don't. They're all caught up in legalism. They're all caught up in their own traditions. They, their own traditions are more important than the word of God. And so they're not really able to figure out when Jesus actually shows up and he actually ministers to them. He is the word of God. They're not able to figure it out. And then, of course, in all their legalism, they reject everything he does because they use their legalistic laws to trump uh, their understanding of the Old Testament, which should have prevailed in terms of identifying who the Son of God actually is. So a certain Pharisees who were warned about the great danger of committing the unpardonable sin. Interesting, uh, both Matthew and Mark, they say he who, the one who. So it seems to be an individual. I know some people argue that uh, the nation is at is what at stake here. I actually, you know, obviously, there's a connection between 70 A.D. and what's happening here because the Pharisees are the leaders of Israel. They're the teachers, and they're going to have a big impact on where the nature, you know, where the the future of the country is going to go. They are the representatives of the people. They're going to represent religion to what the people are going to understand about who is the Christ or whether he is, and they will adopt their views. Remember, Jesus also off warns them about. Um, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had leavening influences on the people of God. And, of course, Jesus always rebukes them tremendously, even the, the disciples themselves, he rebukes them. And, of course, they don't get, they don't get it because they have always looked up to these men, uh, that they are the leaders of the synagogue. You mean to tell me that my synagogue leader is wrong? And, and that's exactly what Jesus was saying. They had a hard time accepting those things. So Jesus would warn them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of course, then they start talking about the bread. You know, who did you put the bread somewhere? Where is the bread? And they're all having this discussion about what's going on. And they don't understand the spiritual significance of what Jesus is warning them about. And so they have a hard time figuring this out. So the people at large, especially, they're going to be uh, following these leaders. And Jesus calls these leaders blind guides. Remember, leaders, teachers, they are actually judged by a stricter standard. That's in the book of James. Even in the Old Testament, Jesus warns about, you know, the shepherds of Israel, you know, Ezekiel and Isaiah, different passages. So these men are going to be held explicitly more culpable uh, than, than the others. So I don't believe the nation itself has committed the unpardonable sin, but these men, especially those who saw and witnessed what Jesus did, are going to be warned specifically of committing that sin. Let's turn to John chapter 9, shall we? John chapter 9, verses, I believe, I want 39 through 41, if I can find it. John chapter 9. So in accentuating the these teachers as being more culpable than others. So they're going to be held particularly accountable. Of course, you know, Matthew 23, a great passage where Jesus basically almost blasts the Pharisees into hell. Uh, and hell is mentioned frequently in that passage in Matthew 23. But notice here, uh, John chapter 9, and I believe I want verses 39 through 41. Notice here, and here's after another man is, is healed. And this is that um, the healing of the blind man. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. So that's going to be for those who need to be saved. And that those who see may become blind. Who are those that become blind? Well, they are the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel. They're the ones that also were given evidence here in John chapter 9 about a miracle. The fact they checked it out, they went through all the witnesses, they went through the family, you know, what happened to this guy? 
uh, was he healed and uh, how did this occur and this and that and the other and they found out that yeah this guy was healed by Jesus and are they accepting him as the Messiah the answer is no so they would not accept it so what we have here is a hardness of heart you know they're, they're looking at the circumstances they're looking at the evidence which Jesus is affording them they know the Old Testament scriptures there are many Old Testament scriptures which talk about the coming of Messiah and in fact, they could have lined up everything that Jesus did, you know, everything from his miracles, you know, especially his miracles as being evidence he was Messiah. They could have figured out, you know, this guy was born in Bethlehem. We, we know that from the records. They could have realized that uh, Isaiah 9 specifically said that Messiah will come out of interesting Galilee, which is where he spends a lot of time. It says in Isaiah 9 specifically says that, even though it says in John, by the way, that they didn't, no one comes out of Galilee. It's not true. They misread or didn't read Isaiah chapter 9. There's a lot of uh, messianic psalms we're all familiar with. So these men grew up with all of these types of Christ, you know, even the sacrifices themselves as indicative of what Jesus would do later on the cross. So all these things they grew up with, and yet somehow when Jesus Christ comes to the earth, they can't figure it out even though it's obvious. And so here they're checking out the witnesses. They still can't figure it out. And so Jesus is going to call them on it. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, uh, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. So because they're the teachers, you know, they have a higher standard of judgment of which God will uh, judge them. And so that uh, that's, uh, seems to be the case, certainly, especially with regard to the unpardonable sin. Now, interesting, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they're, you know, they're considered similar gospels compared to John, declared Jesus received the Holy Spirit. We know this, especially when he was baptized. And by that, you know, his humanity, he was anointed to be the king of Israel, the Messiah that was promised throughout the Old Testament. And of course, John the Baptist is going to be the very prophet who uh, anoints Jesus Christ to be the son of God. And so he receives the, the, the Holy Spirit at that time. And we know from uh, all the three gospels that that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, Jesus, he already is God, but his humanity, remember, needs to have be empowered by the Holy Spirit for him to do the job. And so Jesus, as the messianic son of man or the, you know, the messianic servant, is going to be filled with the Spirit. And, of course, what does he do? He goes out in the desert. He survives the, the wilderness temptation by using what? The power of the Spirit and also the Word of God. And, by the way, remember, God also told him no miracles at that time. That was one time with no miracles. For him to survive the temptation in the desert, he's going to be like everybody else. He's going to have to use the Word of God, be empowered by the Spirit, to overcome your temptations. And, of course, his, his temptations are very extreme. But these were things that, that, that were known. So he was, you know, here's humanity, was empowered by the Spirit, is able to survive these temptations. So the Holy Spirit is obviously, obviously with him. And uh, this started his ministry. It's actually predicted in Isaiah chapter 11. Why don't we turn there? Isaiah chapter 11, also Isaiah 61. So this was something which uh, the leaders of Israel should have known. And even remember uh, Nicodemus, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, uh, he told he rebukes Nicodemus. He says, you know, "You're the teacher of Israel. Don't know these things." And of course, what is Jesus talking about? The, you know, the Holy Spirit, that, that God, the Holy Spirit, will be poured out on Israel in the future for their salvation. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. So Isaiah chapter 11. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. And notice here, Isaiah writes that a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and of course, we know that to be David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the one that bears fruit. And notice here, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So this is predicted by Isaiah the prophet. So Isaiah is predicting that Jesse's son, we know this to be David, of course, and David's a type of Christ, 
type of the type of the Messiah, he's going to be filled with the Spirit or rest upon him, as it says in verse two. Notice here now he's going to characterize the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength. Jesus had all these things, and it was demonstrated to them every day. Something unique about Jesus Christ. Even today, people talk about Jesus. Uh, they, you know, they realize there's something phenomenal about this person. They may not recognize him to be the Son of God, but they never criticize him, really. I mean, they sort of kind of do. Sometimes they're getting that way now. But even so, they consider him to be a good teacher, you know, a rabbi, whatever it may be. Uh, nonetheless, there's something unique about Jesus Christ that uh, that is just phenomenal. And, of course, Isaiah tells us all these characteristics. Notice the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So his judgments will be perfect, unlike our own. And we struggle, of course, uh, with all kinds of things that go on around us, not able to figure out this or that, the other thing. But Jesus had perfect objective knowledge, especially when it comes to judgment, and that's part of his being uh, filled by the Spirit, at least the Spirit of God will rest upon him, as it says in Isaiah 61. Let's go to chapter 11. Let's go to 61 now. Notice here. Remember, this passage is quoted in a synagogue uh, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry in Israel. And so he's going to now announce publicly to the entire nation that he is the anointed one. The Spirit has come upon him, and now he's going to discharge the, the Word of God and the ministry as the Messiah to Israel. Notice verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember, this is where Jesus quotes this passage in that synagogue. And, of course, they go through the whole thing, and he opens up a passage. He opens up Isaiah 61 to be indicative of what he's going to do to Israel. And notice here, because the Lord has anointed me, he just got baptized. So and this is public. You know, John the Baptist said, okay, he has the Spirit of God. This is the one. And, of course, that was John the Baptist's whole ministry. And after John the Baptist announces this, you know, his ministry starts to fade. And now the whole ministry of Jesus Christ has come to the forefront. And what is he going to do? He's going to demonstrate his messianic credentials by one of the reasons, through his miracles especially, to prove it. One of the reasons, you know, today, you know, the whole point of the Jews, they they looked for miracles, so they were given those miracles. The, the evidence was just piled high around these people, the kind of evidence that we don't have today. Remember, Jesus tells Thomas, you know, that uh, blessed are you who believe, even though you haven't seen. What if these miracles were done today? Would people still believe? No, it's already been shown. It's already been demonstrated. It doesn't matter whether the miracles or the evidence is there or not. People refuse to believe regardless. So really, the evidence is beside the point. And especially we see in John chapter 5, you know, these, these Pharisees were given all kinds of evidences. We'll, we'll go through that in verses 30 through 40. But here Jesus starts this, publicly announces it in Luke chapter 4. He's quoting this passage. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. So there we have gospel. Good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and then also to proclaim liberty to captives, to freedom to prisoners. So his, and of course, remember in Luke chapter four, the, the men in the synagogue, they say, you know, this guy has speaks from, uh, you know, grace, really emphasizing grace in that passage. Here it talks about liberty. Christians should be known, by the way, for teaching liberty and grace. Are we known for that? think so it's a, all kinds of other things of course a lot of our mis mischaracterizations and a lot of uh, people have a lot of funny ideas about what christians do but part of the problem is ourselves uh, liberty and grace should be at the heart of what we're teaching that's what jesus did here in luke 4 by the time by the time he got done in luke 4 they were going to throw him off the cliff interestingly enough because they had anti-grace attitudes anti-liberty a lot of people are that way today politically too by the way 
you know, God gave Adam and Eve in the garden a lot of freedom, didn't he? Did it lead to a lot of problems? Yes, it did, but God still gave it, did he not? And the answer is yes. Okay, what's the problem? Is the problem with liberty? No, the problem was with Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Okay, God gives grace today. Is there a problem with grace? A lot of people seem to think so. They're afraid to teach it. No, the problem is not with grace. The problem is with people. People. And Jesus is on the earth, okay, and he demonstrates his power to them. He's the Messiah. And what was the problem? Was it with, with all the evidence that was given them? No, the problem is with people. They were unwilling, as it says. Their wills prevented them from believing in Christ. And it was very obtuse by the time that Jesus demonstrated all the things he did. So, you know, the hardness of heart is just really uh, running wild by the time he starts really doing some of these miracles, as we will see in uh, Matthew chapter 12. So there's a history behind. They, they, didn't, they didn't just all of a sudden commit the blasphemy of the Spirit by calling, okay, you're doing this in the power of the devil. There's a tremendous history that's going on before that time even arrives. And, of course, it starts here in Luke chapter 4, you know, quoting here from Isaiah chapter 61, that he's already been baptized by the Spirit, so he is the Messiah. You guys should be able to figure this out. Now he's going to demonstrate it through his ministry all the way through up until Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, and then on to verse 30. So, again, the original historical context strongly indicates the unpardonable sin was an exceptional sin that was very difficult to commit, which Jesus actually points out more than once. And Jesus will even expose the contradictory reasoning processes the Pharisees had to go through to arrive at such a conclusion that the exorcistic powers of the Son of God were from the devil. So notice, remember, Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, a familiar passage that we all know, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. So that's a passage we all understand. Well, the unpardonable sin is a part of this whole discussion here. So these men are willing to accept contradictory reasoning, conspiracy theories, we could say, rather than accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I mean, they, they, were, they just saw Jesus commit a, uh, you know, not commit, but he actually exercised a demon from a man. They witnessed it. They looked at that. There's a whole history now that they've been watching. In fact, they're trying to entrap Jesus. You know, they're not really interested in who he is. They're, they're mad at him. They're jealous of him. There's a lot of things going on. And, they're, and now they see this take place, and now what are they going to tell people? So they're standing around, and uh, people are saying, wow, this has got to be the Messiah. And the Pharisees look at this, and, you know, of course, their, their jobs are in jeopardy, really, if you think about it. If we don't accept that he's a son of God, uh, or if he is a son of God, well, what's, this, what's this mean for us? What's in it for us, see? By the way, they were making a lot of money. They were into the money. Almost every time Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, it's about money, by the way, especially Matthew 23. You know that passage? There's a lot of discussion about money. Uh, Luke chapter 16, the unrighteous steward. Of course, the Pharisees are the perfect example of it. You know, they were lovers of money, as it says. In another passage of Mark chapter 7, of course, what they do? They added all kinds of extra rules and regulations on top of the original Mosaic Constitution. That They were themselves were in charge of that operation, that legalism. So all the money went to them. Remember, Jesus criticizes them for, look, you guys can't even take care of mom and dad anymore because all the money goes to you guys. We can talk about Social Security and you know old people. Who can take care of her mom and dad today? Even though that's explicitly commanded by the Old Testament, right? But they had it all set up to where people didn't have the money. It all went to the Pharisees. They weren't even able to take care of mom and dad anymore. 
So Jesus calls him on it. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 23, shall we, for example? And, of course, this is that famous passage where Jesus basically blasts him into hell. So these men uh, were very powerful. They had a lot of money. And they were not interested in anything God was doing, even though they claimed they were, but they really weren't. All they're interested in really is controlling people. And uh, they, they were in it for the money. Notice here Matthew 23. So this is part of the reason of the whole why they reject Jesus Christ is because they're in it for political and economic reasons. Uh, of course, they dress it all up in religion. It looked really good. That's why Jesus tells, tells his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch out, guys. These are false teachers. They're, they're sheep, you know, they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And they will devour you, which is what they were doing to Israel. Notice uh, chapter 23. Uh, notice they're interested in money. Of course, they were arrogant as well. Verse 12. Verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. So these men are specific, specifically culpable, more culpable than others, because they're in charge of uh, teaching Israel. And of course, they put themselves in that position. They are the leaders of Israel, the false prophets of Israel. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long, let, long prayers, therefore you receive greater condemnation. So what are these guys doing under legalism? They are devouring widows' houses. They're, they're taking over the homes. So you got a, a husband that dies, who's going to take care of the widow? Well, the Pharisees are taking the money. How do they do that? Well, they devised legalism to do that. They, all, they were the lawyers of the day. With lawyer, lawyerism, they're able to control things through extra rules and regulations in order to make sure that they got the money. And we have a very similar situation in our own country today with our politicians. They've, they've gained the system so they get the money. And, of course, they got rules and regulations galore to make sure that's how it works. So things really haven't evolved much. It's just... Uh, Evolve from religion to politics. Basically, politics is another form of religion. And people haven't figured that out yet. Notice verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and on and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. So notice uh, the idea of hell is used here. Uh, these are uh, devilish people. Jesus here calls them on this. Notice uh, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, who swears by the temple... That is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Again, they're more interested in the gold than they are the temple. He, he, he says it again. You fools and blind men, verse 17, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, verse 18, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. So these guys, all that's all they care about is money. By the way, when Jesus cleansed the temple, what happened, right? These guys are making money. Exchanging money, doing this, doing that. It's all about money. And then, of course, if you brought your cow, you know, from the, from the field, what are they going to do with that cow? They will say, well, you know, according to our regulations, you know, that cow is not good enough. You got to go buy one over here. By the way, uh, pigeons, you know, were supposed to be for poor people. There are actually records they have found that uh, at that time, uh, when Jesus walked the earth, that pigeons were sold for 80 times more than they were worth for the poor people. So the uh, Jerusalem temple was a big money-making operation. And that's why Jesus says, you guys have turned this into a, you know, a, den, of, a den of robbers. He calls them robbers. It's a religious mafia is what it was. Okay, and so these guys are going to be 
determining whether or not Jesus is the Christ, the mafia. Okay, and what are these guys going to do? Right? They're going to make the wrong choice, of course. And they're not going to accept it because that means they'd have to, you know, repent, right? God forbid we should, they should do that. Yes. Change their minds about who Jesus is. Of course, very difficult. So again, anyway, this is why part of the reason the whole problem, their whole lives are wrapped up in, in making money off of people. Their whole lives are wrapped up in deluding themselves with their own religion that they are good people. And uh, it, Jesus always criticizes them throughout his entire ministry. And so now that now they basically his miracles are going to corner him, corner them. Specifically, uh, this demon exorcism is going to corner them. They're going to have to make a choice now: is he the son of God or not? What's it going to be? So what do they do? They say, well, he's doing this in the power of the devil. And it's completely contradictory. It's a conspiracy theory. So they'll accept that rather than accept, admit that Jesus is the son of God. Okay, let's go to John chapter 5. Let's get some of the evidences that Jesus was the Christ that Jesus discusses. So again, this is, these are all reasons why the Pharisees should have recognized that he indeed was the son of God. They were not willing to accept that. And so notice all the evidences that Jesus uh, talks about in John uh, chapter 5. We'll start in verse 30. So John chapter 5, verses 30 and 40, 30 through 40. So Jesus is speaking. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Remember, we talked about this in Isaiah 61. You know, he, he's able to uh, judge properly because he doesn't do it based on the flesh. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we know uh, God, uh, Jesus as God, of course, but also as humanity had to be filled with the Spirit, and he's going to do what God tells him to do. And, uh, of course, that's all written down in the Word. Verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. So he recognizes that, that problem. He's not testifying about himself. He's the Son of God. He has other witnesses to testify that he is truly the Son of God. And he's now going to detail them what they are and what should have been recognized by the Pharisees. So he's not like some David Koresh or like Charles Manson says, you know, I, I'm the son of God. He's, he's not a nutcase like such people are. No, he had testimony behind him. And that testimony is now, by the time he shows up, with all, especially the miracles, it's so piled high that you, you can't even, what, who, what's going on here? The testimony was so powerful. And yet these men will say, no, he's doing this in the power of the devil. Keep reading. So verse 30, um, verse 32, there's another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. He's talking about God the Father. So God the Father is also going to testify that he is truly the Christ. And then verse 33, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. So John, the whole purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to what? Testify that Jesus was the Christ. Notice these words, testimony, testify. The idea that you and I believe in some, you know, go out on a limb and jump off a cliff and become Christians, that this is all false. It's not true. What we see in the Gospel of John, especially in the Gospel of John, is that people rejected the testimony of Jesus Christ, even though the testimony was overwhelming. And they still rejected it. Why? Because, well, we're all sinners, aren't we? The universal depravity of man is more obvious under, you know, under the ministry of Jesus Christ than any other time in history. And, of course, they, these men should have known these things. They, they grew up with the Old Testament. They prophesied his coming. They knew about the sacrifices. Yet when the, when the temple himself comes, what do they do? They get all upset because, of course, he cleanses the temple. And they're, they're making money off of people. 
And so Jesus was, you know, he was telling them this is not right. He was a big threat to what they were doing. Keep reading. Verse 34. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So he gives them testimony. So Christianity is not without testimony. This is why we have apologetics. Right? And by the way, it's just amazing to me. We probably have some of the best answers. I think we actually do have the best answers, historically speaking, that the church has ever had apologetically. And yet we have Christians bailing out in the Word of God uh, right and left today. It is shocking to me as I watch, uh, you know, of course, uh, Dr. Baker's presentation, watching this stuff go on all around us. It's amazing. Yet we have some of the best answers that we could we could ever have. Jesus was the Son of God. He proved it to him through his miracles. Remember in, in even First Corinthians chapter 1, you know, the Jews look for signs. Well, he gave those signs to them. The Greeks searched for wisdom. The Jews, they searched for signs. Of course, he gave it to them, showed it to them all the time. And yet they still said no. Keep reading. Verse uh, 36. Oh, verse 35. He was a lamp, talking about John the Baptist, that was burning and was shining, that you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. So notice that word light. Again, testimony. That, that's the meaning here. Verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. So he's actually much better. He's better than the Old Testament prophets, which later on, as we're going to see in Luke chapter 11 and 12, or Matthew 12 as well, Jesus actually distinguishes his own time with the people of Israel than from any other time in history, which leads up to the unpardonable sin. This is a unique time period. Remember, he told them uh, something greater than Solomon is here, guys. Look at the people of Nineveh. They repented the preaching of Jonah. This is all part of the discussion about the unpardonable sin. And, of course, after the whole discussion about the unpardonable sin, what happens? You know, the Pharisees, are, they say he's doing this by the power of the devil. And, of course, then they start to get meaner about everything that's going on. And probably shortly after this time period, they're going to start you know, kicking people out of synagogue if they accept Jesus as the Messiah. So now the heat's going to get turned up significantly. And the whole ministry of Jesus Christ is going to change. What's he going to do? He's going to start teaching them parables. So the Pharisees, you know, see, Sermon on the Mount, those kind of sermons are not going to, we're going to stop doing that because that really attacks the very foundations of what these guys are doing. So now Jesus is going to use parables. And then what's going to happen? Well, the parables are just going to kind of go over their heads. You know, the, the heat will be taken off. They won't know what Jesus is talking about. It's kind of scratch their heads. Of, well, what is, what's, he, what's he mean? What is this, that, and the other? And then, of course, then he'll sit down and talk with the disciples privately and tell them what it means. And that will become, you know, his ministry. Meanwhile, these guys are, are you know, they're, they're done. It's almost like they've, they've, uh, they've there's nothing more he can do for them. He's offered everything possible. So there's really nothing more that he can do for them. Now it's going to become more private. And, of course, ultimately he's going to be crucified, which will lead to their salvation. Of course, uh, those who believe in him. Keep reading verse uh, 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified about me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So, of course, God is he's invisible, and uh, this is part of the whole problem when it comes to God, is that no man's ever seen him, no man's ever heard him. Of course, we have a lot of people who seem to think they do. By the way, even today, I've never heard God, I've never seen him. At this point, I'm looking forward to the day when like, I get to hear him and see him, but at this point, I still haven't heard or see him. And yet, these people are experts about God, yet they haven't seen his form or heard anything about him, heard any voices from him. Yet, they know all about God, but they don't. So the testimony they have has been distorted and uh, to their own sin. Verse uh, 37, 38. You did not have his word abiding in you. See, that's the problem. For you did not believe him whom he sent. 
And then verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then notice he says, it is these that testify about me. The Old Testament testified about that. All they had to do was look at the Old Testament and then identify, oh yeah, you know, it's like uh, one man talks about these are like uh, fingerprints. All the things that Jesus did historically, all his ministry, and you can line up, you know, that prophecy with this and this, you could, he's the son of God. They could have figured it out very easily, but they were unwilling. The problem wasn't with the knowledge up here. The problem was with their wills. They were unwilling, as it says. They were unwilling to accept him as the Messiah. It was not a problem of evidence, lack of it. Keep reading. 40, and you were unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And of course, in contrast to that, what is death? Part of the problem, these men are dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul tells us. And dead men can't think too well. Right? And just look around today as we see a lot of foolishness going on around us. People are dead. Spiritually, they can't even think how to think properly anymore. And we see this in Christian churches, let alone in the outside world. And, you know, what's happened, the hardness of heart and, and people are dead in their trespasses and sins. We see this in the time of Christ and uh, things really have not improved today. The difference is Jesus was walking the earth. Okay, so let's now go to... Um, I want to say, let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 22, shall we? This is kind of an interesting verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. So this is after the fact, but there's some interesting discussions here. Then we're going to go to Acts chapter 4. This is kind of what the Pharisees should have been doing, but later on they kind of do this. They have more discussions about this. But notice what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. What was the whole point of Jesus' miracles? He tells us, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Of course, this is on the day of Pentecost, and he is speaking in tongues. Right? I mean, we have the, you know, the whole thing with tongues. What is God doing? He's letting Israel know that he's setting up the church international of all the different tongues represented here on the birthday of the church. That's where the gospel is going to all these different various tongues. That's going to be the gospel of grace, by the way, too. As Acts 10 and 11, even Acts 15 is going to be part of that whole discussion. So, you know, Peter gives, you know, he talks about the mighty acts of God and we got people speaking in different tongues. You know, this is an international event. We got people coming from all over the Roman Empire. They got in their ships and they went to Jerusalem to celebrate this event. They go there, they hear the gospel or whatever, the mighty acts of God being that they're talking about in their own tongue without an accent. And of course, you know, I speak a little bit of Russian, but the accent's really thick. It's It's bad. In fact, one guy said, well, you speak like you're from Estonia, Russian, <laughs> which means that it's really bad. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Uh, but these men spoke without an accent, and they're just in shock. So what's the point? Well, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, a Nazarene, a man attested to you. And again, there's that word testimony. To you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as what? You yourselves no. They knew this. You know, we're not talking about some miracles that were committed on TV. That, you know, that you, you can be kind of like a show. Okay, this was done publicly. You know, I like of what uh, Helmut George Mueller talked about. Many, he knows a personal friend of his in Africa, for example, where there were some um, TV preachers came in. You know, they're, they're Pentecostal miracles. They came to town at a missionary and to mission, do mission stuff in Cameroon. And they wanted to set up a tent. They wanted to do this, that, and the other. They had some plans to get this moving and going. And and so the the missionary that was there 
under George's tutelage, uh, he said, well, you don't need to do that. We, there's a hospital right over here. Okay, Jesus went to the hospitals. See, it wasn't a show. People knew that this was going on. There was, there was no way you could doubt this. So he says, just as you yourselves know. It was public testimony. Remember Herod? He wanted to see a miracle too, remember? Right? All right, let's go to Acts chapter 4. This is what they should have done with Jesus. Of course, later on, they seem to show a little more deliberation. Interestingly enough, some of these Pharisees we know, a sizable portion, finally got saved later on, right? Acts 15 tells us that. But notice here, there's a little bit more uh, deliberation going. Remember, Gamil shows up in Acts chapter 5, warning these guys, don't be too hasty in your decision-making. But notice here, Acts chapter 4, we'll start in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Talking Jesus just I mean Peter just did a miracle here too. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. So here you've got a bunch of people building the building, and of course they reject the guy that is the most important part of that building. Wonderful. How did this happen? Well, it's amazing. Verse 12, and there is no salva- there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize him as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who has been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. There was nothing to say. Total silence. I mean, well, they got a miracle here. Peter's just done this miracle. They remember, you know, well, Jesus kind of did that too. Uh, what are we going to say about this? Nothing. Verse 15, but when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. So they said, everybody get out. So we, we've got to have a discussion about this. I mean, So there's supposed to be a public meeting, right? So everybody, you know, they're here, it's all public. And there's nothing they can offer. There's no answers they can have here. The testimony is overwhelming. So they say, okay, people, let's head on out. We're going to talk about this privately. Behind closed doors, as we say today. So then verse 16, saying that, what shall we do with these men? they got a problem. For if the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place to them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, we cannot, what? We cannot deny it. This is why they were silent. There was no answers they could give. Now, how come they could not make these decisions earlier when Jesus walked the earth? It seems like a little bit of opening up here, interestingly enough. Of course, Jesus died and rose again. And now, uh, you know, the <laughs> the resurrection, of course, is something which the disciples are teaching. We have miracles now taking place. that They thought they'd gotten rid of their problem. Now they got a bigger problem than what they had originally. And now, uh, you know, God is starting to set up, set up the international church, of course, which is going to make a lot of people upset, too. Of course, it's going to take a while to get there. With the, the salvation of uh, you know Paul and his ministry, so you know these men are struggling. What do we do with the evidence? We, well, it's, they have no answers to this. Okay, and they should have accepted Jesus as Messiah. We know many did. Let's go to Acts 15, for example. So later on, a lot of the Pharisees we know are going to get saved. And of course, Paul himself was what? He was a Pharisee, of course, under Saul. So notice here, uh, chapter 15. Of course, Paul's this is the whole thing with Galatia, right? And the Galatian problem and legalism. 
And notice here, we'll start in verse 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, so there was a, you know, uh, you know, some kind of a, a portion of the Pharisees had believed, stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. So it's very difficult to, you know, to get these men out of their legalism. But still, you know, they're identified as being saved. So if you look at some of the differences between what happened when Jesus was on the earth, you know, these men, they're, they're, there's no interest in doing what God wants to do. Okay, but later on in Acts 4 and 5, we see more opening up. They're having more discussions about this. Then they say, okay, you guys get out. And they say, what are we going to do about these things? So obviously some people were really thinking this, these things through. You know, maybe he is the Messiah. And so some of them eventually do get saved. Okay, so that's what should have taken place. We saw in Acts chapter 4, yeah, but of course, at least some kind of discussion. They did have some deliberation, but remember, I think Nicodemus was tossed out. and He says, well, you don't know anything. That's in uh, somewhere in John chapter 7 and 8. But let's now go back to Luke chapter 11, shall we? Luke chapter 11. So I want to go to Luke chapter 11. We'll start in verse 14. So Luke chapter 11. So we'll start and we'll go through the text here. And he was casting out a demon, verse 14, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the, mute, the man spoke and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others attest him were demanding to his, to his sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to him, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided itself itself false so jesus here calls them on their contradictory reasoning so they're 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 given this evidence they say no so jesus okay you guys have adopted a conspiracy theory which makes no sense and now he's going to call them on it verse 18 if satan also divided against himself how will his kingdom stand for you say that i cast out demons by belzebul and if i if i by belzebul cast out demons by whom do your sons cast them out so they will be your judges now this is right after luke chapter 10 where the seven disciples went out and one of the things they did was to cast out demons there's a debate here is exactly who are the sons that are doing these things i take it it was the 70 disciples but notice verse 21 when a strong man fully armed this is talking about jesus guards his own house his possessions are undisturbed so satan basically is running the house here okay and everything's good he's he's in charge of course we know this in ephesians chapter 2 he's in charge of the world and then he says here, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. That's what Jesus is doing. He's doing this through miraculous powers. Of course, he's filled by the Spirit. We know this from Luke chapter 4. And so now he's really cleansing the house of Israel and he's using miraculous supernatural powers to do it. And he's demonstrating that he's actually more powerful than Satan. So who's going to be more powerful than Satan? Well, only the Son of God. And so they should have put this all together to realize, well, you know, maybe Jesus is the Son of God. Look, he's doing, he's overpowering Satan. He's setting aside demons, casting them out. And the obvious conclusion is that he's our Messiah. And he's doing this by the power of the Spirit. Of course, they did not do that. Uh, so keep reading. Verse uh, 23, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And then verse 24, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in to live there, and the last state of that man is, becomes worse than the first. 
So this is part of the whole discussion about the unpardonable sin too. So after they reject the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever the judgment is, we can debate it. You know, eternal sin, uh, that you know, 70 A.D., whatever it may be, whatever it is, Jesus says here, it's going to be worse than when it before I got here. That's for sure. And the demonism, of course, will be more interesting enough working overtime. So Jesus, for the time being, is sort of giving them a little time of rest here with regard to his ministry. But then after they reject him, it's going to be worse, interestingly enough. So there, you know, this judgment here is kind of interesting. I can't solve all the problems. Uh, we can debate them exactly what they mean. But still, we do know for sure that the last state will be worse than the former state before he showed up. So again, Jesus' own time on the earth is going to distinguish it from other time periods. Now let's go to um, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. So again, about this, the really parallel passages here. So Matthew chapter 12, we had the same discussion. Remember uh, chapter 12, verse 25, any king divided against itself. And then verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And then verse 31, therefore I say to you, any sin, blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against spirit shall not be forgiven. Now let's jump to verse... Um, 36. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, shall they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. So there's something to think about. For if by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So what we say actually is pretty powerful. The things that come out of our mouth. We don't think about what we say, but uh, God places a premium on the things we say. Wow. 38, that some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Well, he's been doing this this whole time, has he not? Apparently, they were not supernatural enough. I don't know what the discussion is here. You know, There's different views on that too. What more do you want them to do? Maybe they wanted the second coming. That was part of their problem. They wanted to see something more spectacular. You know, the, uh, the, real, the real miracles, the blood, fire, and the smoke. Well, if he did that, that's the end. Right, so he could, you know, he came to save him the first time. Second time will come back, and you know, judgment will come then. So he wasn't going to do it then. But notice of what Jesus answers, regardless of all that whole discussion. Notice here now, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And notice verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And, of course, that's going to be indicative of his resurrection. So he's going to give them the sign of his resurrection. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, for example, teaches that really the miracles of Christ now are going to be much more private after this time period. So Jesus has already done all of the work relative to his ministry. This has now been rejected. And so now the miracles are going to be much more private and connected to his disciples. And so the real next miracle they're going to get is going to be the resurrection of Jesus. So he tells them that which is coming up. But notice verse 41. This is what I want to focus on. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repent to the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the very presence of Jesus Christ on the earth and the testimony and all the things he was doing really demonstrates uh, that he is the son of God and they, they should have accepted this. There's no doubt about this. So really his... You know, his time on the earth, the revelation is so high, the evidence is so high that these men really are cornered. And they have to make a decision, you know, to believe in Christ. And of course, if they don't, what are they going to say? Well, he's doing this in the power of the devil. 
Well, that doesn't make any sense because why would Satan get rid of his own demons? And so what's happening here, these men are going through mental gyrations at, to the point where the, you know, the reasoning skills are gone. Of course, their faith is not even there. They don't believe it. And so now they're, they're doing mental gymnastics to try to explain what's going on, kind of like our own situation in our own country today. As people reject God, uh, it's just amazing what's going on today with trend, you know, the transgenderism and all this type of thing. Um, you know, I, I just, I'm just, uh, the thinking is gone today. And people are, are to have hardness of heart, a big case of this. The Pharisees did too, and they were given much better information than what we have today, much better evidence. Keep reading. The Queen of Sheba will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then Jesus gives that discussion as we read back in Luke chapter 11. Now the unclean spirit goes out of a man if it passes through waterless places and seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came and when it comes, it will find it unoccupied, swept and put in order. And then of course, in the last state it becomes worse than the first. So it's part of the whole discussion here. I am here, therefore the judgment has been placed on a higher level and therefore if you don't make these decisions, guys, it's going to be worse for you at the end of the day. And the unpardonable sin, of course, is connected to this, especially with regard to the Pharisees and specific, specifically those who actually saw it and witnessed it. And they're going to go back and tell their, the Sanhedrin what's going on. And, and so their viewpoint, their interpretations are going to uh, have big influences on how the nation accepts or rejects Jesus Christ. And, of course, we know that ultimately the nation rejected Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus clearly tied the warning of the unpardonable sin together with the uniqueness of his own gospel time period that was greatly distinguished from all the other errors of the Old Testament. He thus singled out the religious leaders of Israel, especially the Pharisees, as being particularly culpable precisely because of the concentrated amount of divine revelation that was given to them. We know this from Matthew 12, 41 and 42. We just read that. These men, the Pharisees, prided themselves in the very Old Testament that predicted the coming of the Messiah. And yet when he finally came, they indicted him with demonism by claiming his powers of exorcism were inspired by the devil. And so in the historical person and presence of Jesus Christ, the messianic miracles predicted by the Old Testament and the condemnatory consequences of the Mosaic Law came together into an explosive mixture that has not been seen before or since. So see, not only do we have the Old Testament Law, which, by the way, is, con is condemning enough. The law prosecutes you. Is not what it does? Well, now we have also, along with this, the revelation of the Son of God, which now is going to place us on even a higher scale. And so, really, this is a unique uh, time period relative to Jesus Christ when he walked on the earth. Dr. J. Vernon McGee puts it this way, Sheer logic leads us to see that if in the days of Christ's presence on the earth, to attribute his miracles to the power of Satan rather than to the power of the Holy Spirit was to commit the unpardonable sin, then conversely, his absence today makes it impossible for us to commit the unpardonable sin and our position is entirely consistent with a whosoever will gospel. Amen to that. And then Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, uh, he concludes, the possibility of this sin being committed ceased with Christ's removal from the earth. And this, by the way, is picked up in uh, Acts chapter 6. So why don't we turn there briefly and then we'll call it quits for this afternoon. So let's go to Acts chapter 6. We'll look at verse chapter 7 as well. But notice here, Stephen. So really, uh, we never hear about the blasphemy of the Spirit anymore. It, it's gone. It's not a part of the discussion anymore in the New Testament. And um, we have a good case in point here with Stephen. So notice here, uh, we'll turn to Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Remember, Stephen, 
The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and some other men. So we know that Stephen is a man full of faith and, and the Spirit. By the way, these are connected. You're you know, filled by the Spirit, full of faith, interestingly enough. We know that Jesus was event, or that Stephen was martyred in chapter 8, verse 1. Let's go to verses 8 through 10 now. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So he was doing miraculous powers. Okay, and so he was able to do this. Miracles were granted to him, especially you know in those days. We know the apostolic time period. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And, of course, now they're going to try to indict him with... Uh, some kind of sin here, of course, then they have this big discussion in chapter 7 where Stephen actually stands before the Sanhedrin. And what does he do? He gives him a history lesson. And he does not, by the way, and he talks about the history of Israel and all the things uh, that they, you know, that they happen in the Old Testament, but he does not bring up the unpardonable sin. What he says, you guys are always resisting the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, when they kill him, he prays that God forgive him. So again, very different uh, after the time of Christ and what we see, what we already read in Matthew 12. So no, let's go to chapter 7 and we will go down to verse um, 55, I think. Let's start there. Chapter 7, verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Of course, people debate that. Maybe Jesus given us a rousing ovation for his tremendous, courageous discussion, you know, this sermon he gave at the, before the Sanhedrin. Gave him basically a history lesson. It's just a, you know, an Old Testament history lesson. By the time they got done with the history lesson, now they want to kill him. History teaches, by the way, where is the idea you, get, you learn from history? Where does that come from? This book right here. The Greeks, they didn't figure out history until much later. Old Testament is full of history, all the way from, going back to Genesis. We learn from history. Keep reading. When they heard this, verse 54, actually let's go back. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. So you know, he gave them a history lesson. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55, and now verse 56, he said to them, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing. And then verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. They don't want to hear what he has to say and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So he was there. He witnessed it. And then they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord, Jesus received my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And so, you know, the whole discussion about the unpardonable sin is now non-existent. And Stephen, of course, is a good example of that. So once again, we have evidence that this is not a sin that can be committed today. It's unique to the time of Christ. And so if we have God's Christian or they're worried about they're committed that sin, again, uh, biblically, historically, contextually, I don't believe that sin can be committed today. So anyway, that's my discussion about the unpardonable sin. I might have finished a little bit early, maybe. Is that possible? A few minutes early? So any questions you may have, I can try to answer those, do the best I can to answer them. It's a difficult passage, a lot of interesting verses. And... Um, three miracles do happen, you finish
about five minutes. It's a small miracle. I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay, anybody have any, any questions for Mark on this side? We'll start over here. Are you scratching your ear or are you raising your hand, Dave? David. Uh, Mark, thank you for your paper. Um, how have you handled the end of 1232, either in this age or the age to come? Because I hold the view you do, but that's always been a, just a, a difficult statement. No, I, it's, a, it's a hard passage, yeah. So how have you how have you handled that? Well, my own personal view, I mean, people debate it, and it's it probably not a big deal whether you consider it to be 70 AD or, but I take it that what we have here is an extreme form of unbelief in, in light of all the testimony that was given to them. And so, um, you know, they're, Christ may have died for their sins, but it's not going to be accrued to their account because they they reject it. And so, it's like an extreme form of unbelief. Yeah, they they they, they took the unbelief to the, the heights that have never been seen, or before or since, because they were given so much evidence. Yeah, I take a different view. I think this age is during that particular time when he's offering the kingdom, and the age to come isn't the church age; it's the the kingdom. Yeah, that's a view. I Which think. is, you know, that would be the yeah, future. The messianic. Right. Well, yeah, right, right. Okay. <clears throat> Dan, Pastor Bob Bolander has hand up next, I think. Oh, he's going to say the same thing. Well, bless you, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, back here. Thank oh, you Mr. For Baker. Thank you for your Dr. Presentation. Baker, thank you. Thank you for your presentation. I found that uh, the approach that you took was unique. I haven't heard it done that way before, but I thought it was valuable, going through and looking contextually why they should have believed in the Messiah and so forth, and their willful rejection of that. I thought that was very valuable. In uh, dispensational circles, it's long been held, or at least a primary school of thought in this area, has been that when someone rejects the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life for so long, that God, the Holy Spirit, quits calling that person and allows them to remain in their sin. And they use this as a passage, not the only passage, but a passage, or at least an explanation of it. I'd like to hear your response to that particular viewpoint. And then secondly... It, it, as obviously you don't believe that to be true, do you think there's any functional difference between the Holy Spirit not calling a person any longer and the unpardonable sin? Well, again, I, I think it's unique to its own time period. So regardless of how you, in my mind, clearly it can't be committed today. So obviously today the Holy Spirit still continues to call people up until, you know, they're, up until the, they die, as I understand, the, the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so there's a, a ministry that He has, which is ongoing. But of course, in, in those days, Jesus on the earth, unique time period. I take it that these men crossed a line from which there was no recovery. And just like the Exodus generation, you know, they crossed, of course they're believers. They crossed the line; there was no recovery, and uh, so they died in the desert. And so these men were given all kinds of information, much more evidence than we've ever seen before or since. They still said no, and so they crossed the line. And um, what are you going to do more? What's God going to do for him here? So he's done everything possible, conceivable, to bring them to that, to repentance, so to speak, to salvation in Christ, to faith in Christ. 
I hope that answers your question. Um, then, then, if I understood you correctly, then you would disagree that there comes a point or there is, it's possible, let me put it this way, it's possible for a person to come to a point that they've rejected the Holy Spirit for so long that the Holy Spirit no longer calls that person. For instance, in John 12, um, I believe it's 44, um, they, although he did all these miraculous signs, they would not believe, as is said in Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes Isaiah, and then he says, therefore they could not believe, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes so they cannot see. So you're saying that that would, would that also be, that, that phenomena, would you see that would also be particular to that time, or does yes, that phenomena yeah, be, still go on today? Yeah, again, unique to Jesus' time on the earth, uh, you know, he singles it out. If you look at 11, Mark, Luke 11 and 12 and also Matthew 12, you know, this unique time period, he was on the earth. If uh, preaching of Jonah is nothing compared to what I'm, what I'm hearing now, even the Queen of Sheba. So it's unique to his own, his own uh, appearance on the earth. And so remember, Stephen says you always resisting the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. And so after Jesus dies and rises again, again, it's back to resisting the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is still ministering to them. The Old Testament's ministry, you know, is still there. Obviously, when people reject the Word of God, as Israel does, there's a hardening process that goes on. Uh, but I take it to God is still, we know from the prophets, Hosea, Isaiah, they always minister to them. There was always the opportunity for repentance. Remember Ezekiel and, and those different passages where God is still reaching out to them if you would... So I take it again. It's unique to the time of Christ, and and it can't this that whole scenario cannot be repeated today or even before His coming. So I, I locate it only at the time of Jesus Himself. Yeah, I'm I'm curious because having studied at the mecca of dispensationalism, I you know Walford, Ryrie, uh, you know every Pentecost, all the guys at Dow, Tucson, all took a this is unique to the time of Christ view, did not relate it to um, you know, anything that could come after that. So you, you made a comment that others in dispensationalism held a different view, but I'm... Ironside, I, I, Ironside takes a different view. Okay. Um, I think uh, Schofield takes a different view, and not, in, not in his study Bible, but in, uh, in his... Um, well, I'm trying to remember the, the um, true evangelism. I think he takes a different view. So it's not a big deal. I just wanted to know if... So if I'm understanding you correctly, then you're saying that throughout, as long as a person has breath, that um, there is never a time when the Holy Spirit stops calling that person. There never comes a time of judicial hardening in the life of an individual today. That's that's your position. That's all I was trying to clarify. Yeah, I mean, the gospel is still available. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people may harden their, their hearts against... Uh, you know, nature, for example, we know that from Romans chapter 1, they reject... Uh, the nature that God is a creator, and so what happens? Well, if you don't give glory to God, there's going to be hardening of the arteries, spiritually speaking. If you give them the gospel and they reject the gospel, of course, there's some hardening processes going on here as they reject the word of God. But I don't think it's fatal in the sense that they'll never believe in Christ. That's a little bit different question. Yeah. Okay. Any? I got a question down here. Is Barb here? Okay. I just checked. We don't have any live streamer questions on this topic. So, John. What would you do then with the book Revelation and book in the, during the tribulation period when the person takes the mark of the beast? My understanding is once they make that decision to take the mark oh, of the beast. I, I understand, yeah. Well, we can talk about the restrainer, the Holy Spirit being missing during the Great Church. There's a lot of things that are very different during the uh, 
great tribulation that uh, different kinds of things are happening. Judgment, of course, is the whole point. But people still get saved regardless, even during that time period. Yeah, I was going to add that, yeah, that, that the, the period of quiet time that we're talking about is in the church age. We're not talking about what goes on in the tribulation. The, uh, there are some different dynamics. So, okay, any any other questions? Barb, did you? I didn't think so. I didn't see any. Don't want to play stump, Mark. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Mark. Well, why don't we why don't we pray and we'll be dismissed, huh? We can. Okay, and just uh, I don't have any specific announcements. If anybody doesn't know anything, we're back here. We started 7.30 promptly tonight, and um, I look forward to seeing everybody back here at that time. I would like for uh, – hmm, who am I going to pick? Oh, Dan, Pastor Ingram, i got a question for you afterwards. So, Mark, <laughs> why don't you close us in prayer? <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are very grateful today. We thank you for all your blessings. We thank you for the conference. Uh, Thank you for the weather. Even though it looked uh, pretty bad yesterday, we thank you. You allowed us to all get together to come and study the Word of God together. We pray for a profitable time. We pray for Chafer Seminary as well. We pray for grace you may give to this school. And um, just really pray for your blessing this week as we study the Word of God together and grow spiritually. Once again, Lord, we give thanks again for all your blessings. And... uh, we're very grateful. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.